The views, information, and opinions expressed are those of the featured guests and not those of IG Wealth Management. I'm Manjeet Minhas, one of Canada's top entrepreneurs, and so excited for you to join us today. Through a wealth of women's stories, IG is carving out a space where women's voices are heard. If you're looking for insight and inspiration through powerful storytelling that will resonate with anyone looking for the answers to the questions that we as women ask ourselves, then this series is for you. our first episode of season two with Beth Wilson, former CEO of Dentons in Canada. Prior to becoming the CEO at Dentons, Beth had 11 years of comprehensive C-suite experience at KPMG Canada in a variety of leadership roles. Passionate about community building, she sits on the boards of incredible institutions including Sick Kids Hospital, Wood Green Foundation, and Civic Action. Beth's professional career of over 30 years afforded her many opportunities to further causes that she is passionate about, such as the advancement of women in business, volunteering and promoting a leadership mindset, which have culminated in numerous awards, including the top 25 Canadian Women of Influence, YWCA Women of Distinction, and twice being named among Canada's top 100 most powerful women. Known for being an inclusive, results-oriented change leader, Beth embodies passion, commitment, and a sense of purpose in everything she does. Welcome to the podcast, Beth. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Well, thanks for taking the time to share not only your story, um, your experience and your journey, but a lot of the lessons um, that you learn upon reflection of your journey and where you're headed in the future, because no, by no means is it over. And so I'm really excited about our chat today, because through a lot of hard work and determination, you've had such an incredible career brimming with accomplishments, learnings and recognition. And you've definitely inspired many throughout your journey. Um, and I'm sure you'll inspire a lot of our listeners today. So let's start there maybe. Tell us how your career got started um, and maybe how you ended up at KPMG. So I took a Bachelor of Commerce at University of Toronto and decided that I wanted to be a professional accountant to pursue my CA as it was called at the time. And as I approached the summer of my third year, I really wanted a summer job in my profession. I thought it would give me a leg up on getting a full-time position ultimately, but there were no real summer programs at that time. There were no co-op programs. So I honestly, I cold called a bunch of accounting firms and I got one call back. I was interviewed and I was hired and I summered at KPMG's Scarborough office. And I love the people and the experience so much that when they offered me a full-time position on graduation, that's, that's what I took and that's really where it all began. Wow. Um, and so is your family full of accountants or in the no, STEM? No, I, I come from a family of teachers. And my dad my dad was actually an engineer, but he taught for most of his career. So I think think he was hoping that his daughter would pursue engineering. But I don't they don't come from a business background. It was really a high school counselor that pointed me in the direction of accountancy. Oh, got it. Yeah. Um, my dad's an engineer too. And my brother and I did engineering also. And funny enough, just like you, I really wanted to get into and learn about what it might be as a career as an engineer, except I decided that after my first year and I cold called and got no jobs, I got a bunch of rejections. So maybe after third year is a better time to do that. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so 
as I was reading about your career, I know a few years into your career, you and your husband started a family. And one of your former leaders at KPMG said in an interview that you're a proud mom and given the chance, you'll talk everyone, anyone's ear off about your husband and your two boys. I do the same thing, but I have two girls. Um, and that you're driven, but you have your priorities straight. And I found that really fascinating um, in a variety of ways, because I'm sure so many listeners can relate that either they're planning families or in the midst of it. And so how did you manage the responsibilities of when you wanted to start a family and became a mom? And then um, also investing in yourself, in your career. And then a little bit later on, um, maybe we can talk about the choice of your husband to be sure, uh, sure. a stay-at-home dad. So big topic. Um, and I will, you know what, it's not easy. And so I'm not even going to sugarcoat it and pretend mm -hmm. that it's easy or that I had it all figured out. But looking back now, I do really believe that if you're passionate and engaged in your career, and that makes you this better, stronger, happier person, then it also makes you a happy and strong parent. And so mm. I tended to look at work and life sort of as integrated, right, as opposed to this win-lose concept of balance, where you're either in balance or out of balance. Um, I also put a lot of supports around me. So my mom, she was a teacher. She went back and got her master's. She became a principal. So her, her career was really important in our household at a time when you didn't see a lot of that. And she taught me pretty early on to put the supports in place that I needed. So she used to say, look, if you're choosing to work and be engaged and earn money, then you should spend some of that money to make the quality of time you have with your family worthwhile. So, you know, when I was growing up and we were, you know, kind of middle income family <laughs> living in the suburbs, we had a cleaning lady, which was pretty, you know, unusual at that time. But it was just a good example, right, mm -hmm. of, of my mom role modeling what you needed to do to, uh, to make it work. And my husband was fully engaged. And we can talk about this a little bit more in a minute. But he, he took parental leaves after my mat leaves finished. We shared drop-off and pick-up. We shared housework. And then I tried in those early years when the boys were really little too to just put some reasonable expectations around myself at work. So I did my networking at lunch or through my community involvement, not in the evenings, not on a golf course all day Saturday. And I, I had a feeling that it probably slowed me down a little bit compared to male peers. I may not have made as many contacts as them, but... But it was just a choice I made and I was okay with it. Um, I knew that I could do more later once the boys were, were older. Right. And then the other thing I would say is that I had very supportive male partners that I worked with. So mm. didn't have a lot of female role models, but, but I had men who really supported me. And, you know, at one point uh, when the boys were little, um, my husband made that choice to stay home full time too, right? And we're, I know we're going to talk about that. And there was no doubt that that was massive in terms of supporting my career and creating a home life for the boys that, that we wanted. Yeah. I, I want to pick up something you said right in the beginning was that I too believe in work-life integration, not balance. I've always said that I think work-life balance is BS because there is no perfect balance. It's always a tightrope and that we all want and need, I would say, a lot of different, um, not only relationships, but things in different times in our life. And we all have a plan for that, whether there is kids involved or a spouse involved or whatever it might be, it might be caregiving for aging parents, 
there's a lot of other things that that um, are just not about our career that talk to us about a life, not just work. And so I, I love that you um, you also believe in that and that and you touched on happiness and 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 my grandma used to always say loosely translated from Punjabi is that happiness isn't a destination, it's a journey. And that you can't think that, oh, next year I will get there. The year after that, when the kids are, you know, five or 10 or out of the house or like, or I get this title or that, that it is a journey. The boys are interesting because um, there are lots of times when I would feel guilty because I'd open, you know, the journal from kindergarten or I'd read a homemade Mother's Day card and, and the boys would talk about their hardworking mummy who can leap tall buildings and, you know, show me with a briefcase. And so there are, it doesn't, the guilt is always there, I think, but, you know, it, as I got older and as I was pushing myself in my career, I came to realize they were just really proud of me and, and so supportive. And and I think, you know, having that sort of career is a good role model for them as well. I mean, they, they really grew up seeing the world quite differently, right, through the eyes of a mom who was very active in her career and, and they articulate those values themselves. Yeah, funny enough, those home, those written cards, they usually, it's like a blank sheet. And it used to say, my mom is good at cooking and I'm a horrible cook. And I remember my, my little daughter, she had written ordering from Subway. And I thought, oh my God, the teacher's probably like, what the... It was interesting that somebody asked me in an interview um, over International Women's Day that what can men do to be better allies to help women help reach their goals and, and, and spouses in particular. And I said, do the laundry. And, and I wasn't joking. Everybody kind of laughed. And I thought, no, actually, I do mean that. Because no matter what happens, the laundry has to be done. There has to be food in the fridge. Like, toilet's got to be clean. Kind of like you mentioned that your mom had told you. And I do think that sometimes those things are undervalued and underrated as to um, how and who takes responsibility of, of those things getting and, done. And I would add something to your phrase, do the laundry, which is do the laundry without being asked. Very good point. Very good point. I agree with that. And and so um, talking about that, I guess, is that when your husband decided that he was going to um, stay at home with the children, because we definitely see that happening more often now. But at that time, it was not something that um, I feel was the norm. And so do you think that for your family, um, that that was a tough conversation to have? Do you think that, that you would have done it differently or himself or uh, did it all work out according to kind of the plan? So it's an interesting story because it wasn't it wasn't my idea or suggestion, uh, and so I didn't really have to navigate the conversation between us. My husband had taken parental leaves; they had just been introduced in Ontario, so he was one of the first in his company to take those when the boys were were born. And then after he went back to work the second time when Matthew was little, um, I found you know we kind of got to the summer, so Matthew would have been. Uh, well, Matthew was a year and a bit by then, and he started joking about staying home, sort of saying, well, you know, I can do a better job than uh, than the, the day nanny we had. And, and then finally one evening he said to me, no, like I'm not joking. I'm serious about this. I, I want to stay home. And I was a partner by then at KPMG, so we could we could afford it and we were living, you know, we had modest life in a modest home and, and we could certainly make it work financially. So we did it. 
but it was really hard for him because it was not common at all. Mm -hmm. Um, For reference, that would have been 20 years ago. And his parents, who had a pretty traditional household, I would say, they were really concerned. They were concerned about him in terms of would he be unhappy and what would he do as the boys grew up? And it seems like a really different choice. And he found that men would joke a lot. So men would joke and say, oh, that's awesome. You must be on the golf course all day. And and on the other side of the thing, thing around this issue, women judged him a lot. So he found, you know, other mothers, whether it's at the play group or music lessons or in the schoolyard, would just kind of reject him because he was male and they were a little judgy about his competencies in terms of being capable of looking after these kids. So I think there was a lot of bias for him. That's changed uh, for sure now. But even for me, there was bias. People would say, well, she's not a good role model because her husband stays home. But, you know, nobody says that about a successful man in his career. They don't say, oh, he's not a good role model because his, his wife chooses to stay home. Um, instead, they're like, oh, he's a great dad because he leaves once a week to go to soccer practice. Right? But for women, it's the opposite. So thank God that's changing. Um, more and more men are taking parental leave. You see more men choosing to, to stay home. I just think the most important thing here for people is that you have really open and honest conversations with one another about what do you want your family life to look like? What right. kind of child care? What kind of financial commitments are you going to get yourselves into? Can you rely on grandparents? Like what are, what's the network you're going to put around yourselves? And then what are your career expectations? Each of mm-hmm. you, honestly, and you know, whose foot is going to be on the gas pedal for their career at what stage and how are you going to balance that? And, I just think so many young women and men don't necessarily have those conversations and then they get frustrated and resentful when they find themselves in the thick of it. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think that that there has to be plans and communication and constant communication because I think everybody's plan and their dreams, they change at a certain point in time. But without communicating, you don't know with each other as to where you are. And, and I think it has to be a safe space for you to not only ask for help, but also ponder ideas to say, well, what if, what if? And then in a lot of cases, I think the hard truth as far as the math goes as to what can we afford um, right. and where do we want to live? Is keeping up with the Joneses important or is family time and or uh, just what are our priorities and what is important to us? And I love that because I grew up with zero family around me um, here in Calgary, as in no answer uncles, no grandparents, nobody. It was just my parents and my brother and I, which is very different and unique, definitely for Indian families, but also just unique. And now my kids have all of their aunts and uh, uncles, all of their cousins, both sets of grandparents, literally all within 10 minutes of them uh, in the city. And so I rely on them all a lot. And that was the plan before um, my husband and I decided to have kids because I thought to myself, well, it takes a village. I've seen how it works on the other end, which was great, but I do want them to know family and I want them to be a part, to bring some things as far as values, culture, religion, things that maybe I I am not an expert in, but also maybe don't have the time to bring into their life. And so I think, but that was a choice. That was a big discussion between my husband and I for a while, but then also a conversation with them to say how we want them to be involved, which is um, not easy, (laughs) but I think that expectations amongst everybody is, is important. Otherwise it can go south pretty fast. 
Yeah, I, I agree. And I mean, your example is it really demonstrates how different all the models are that are out there, which is why I also say it's so important for women and men to talk more openly, right, about, mm-hmm. well, how have they got their sort of personal life arranged right. and structured so that, you know, younger professionals coming up can look around them and see this whole range of choices that people have made depending on their situation and all being like successful at them, right? So, but unless you talk about it, then, then people don't have any examples to look to. Let's talk about KPMG now. Your reputation while you were rising through the ranks at KPMG was absolutely exceptional. Um, Not only were you the smartest person in the room, according to many colleagues, but you were often the only woman. And you were the second woman to be appointed to the firm's management committee, which is unbelievable as to, I can't imagine how that must have felt, but you saw opportunities for more inclusivity uh, when you were appointed. And so one of the first things that you did unprompted was that you created a maternity guide or resource for pregnant women and new mothers. So can you talk to me about how you made this happen? Um, Did you have a network that you could tap into, allies, mentors, sponsors, that maybe you leaned into or on to develop this model? But um, why did you think that it was important um, to trailblaze? Yeah, that's an interesting example. And that story goes goes way back. I actually initiated that project before I was on the management committee. I saw, I saw a need for it based on my own experience. And I felt that the issue of retaining women could be solved or alleviated to some degree if we all just had better proactive conversations. There's a theme here about communication and conversations mm-hmm. as I talked to you today, but if we had better proactive conversations about it, you know, instead of a woman heading off for six-month leave or one-year leave and, and nobody wanting to have this conversation about how engaged does she want to be while she's on the leave, mm-hmm. what does return look like, what are her expectations on on return, and so so yes, I did, I did pull on a network for that. I, I worked with other women who had lived the experience. I pulled in an HR manager who would have kind of the professional expertise. And then I socialized the idea with a number of partners in the in the office. The interesting thing about this story is that a few years later, before again before I was on the management committee, I also leveraged um, our first diversity council to propose better mat leave for partners and parental leave for dads. And I took that to the management committee and it was rejected at the time. So oh. one of the first things I did do when I when I joined the management committee as the chief HR officer was to leverage the HR team and repropose that. And I think, and I was successful that time around, and I think it was because I had sat at the table. So I had a better feel for how to make the business case, how to alleviate some of those like financial and other concerns that other leaders had and appeal to them in order to approve it. So, you know, my point in that story is that you need women in the seats of power so that they can influence and impact on how decisions are being made. And then they can also better arm their teams, right? So that when their teams present or bring forward an idea, they can be more effective at pitching those solutions. 
And so what would your advice be to women who bring up something and it gets shot down like you did the first time? And many women um, definitely feel that, okay, well, maybe I tried and let's move on, but they don't necessarily come back to it when they have that seat at the table uh, for a variety of reasons. But what would you be your advice as to how do they make sure that they can bring it up again um, and maybe find some success the second time around? Yeah. So I think if you're not at the table, I would say it's all about finding allies and a like-minded sponsor. So build a relationship with somebody who is at the table who can help coach you in terms of framing the case, but who can also advocate and sponsor your initiative when you bring it forward. If you're at the table and you look around and <laughs> there are no other women or, or like-minded individuals and that doesn't seem like it's going to change, I would really advocate for that management team to use advisory groups or task forces or committees, finding a way so that there can be more inclusion of diverse perspectives. So there's not all there's not always room at the table for all of those views or to create more seats. And so I think one of your roles, if you're sitting in a position of power, is to find a way to bring those voices to the table by as I said, task forces or committees or advisory groups. Um, I think my other piece of advice is that you have to balance, when you're at the table, you have to really balance between being an advocate and representing a perspective with picking your spots, right? Because you also want, you're there as a business leader. So you also want to be there because you're an expert in a number of areas and not viewed as, you know, well, there's there's the person who's always going to bring the woman's perspective, right? As if as if there is one woman, as if that's <laughs> homogenous. There's one woman's perspective, or um, you know, a particular particular ethnic view, or some other perspective. So, um, you know, I think somehow, as you know, you just can't represent the diverse views of all women uh, because you have one particular lived experience. So the other thing I found sitting around the table was I had to educate men and others to say. Well, this is my perspective based on my background and experience, but this is not necessarily, you know, a, a, a consensus view of all women in the organization. So let's find a way to bring more diverse voices to the table so that you get a better picture. Yeah, absolutely agree. And I love the idea of creating groups is that because not always are um, people who you want to tap on the shoulders of or take advice from have the time, the energy, or actually even want to take a full-time role at sitting at, at that seat at the table. And But it's nice to be able to tap on them in certain specific ways and doing that through task force or committee work or, um, a, you know, a working group where they can contribute and, you know, you can take the the best and the brightest um, with some ideas forward, but then not give them a full-time role necessarily, because not everybody is looking for that, um, is a great way to keep um, different perspectives involved, but also to include more people in the process. It's also a great way to spot leadership talent early. So nice. if you're you know, looking at how do you build a diverse pipeline of future leaders, I would really encourage people to use committees, task forces, projects to populate those with young, upcoming diverse leaders. And what a great opportunity, right, to see who's really got uh, some of those competencies that you're looking for and to get them some profile in front of senior leaders. And 
so um, I next wanted to go into the CEO succession process and departing KPMG, which is a big part of, um, I think, your story. So as you grew as a leader, you said that you began to see yourself in what other colleagues saw in you, and which was CEO potential. And so after 26 years at KPMG, you decided to pursue that ambition. And now we know um, from Catalyst Annual Report that only 24 of the TSX listed companies, Canadian companies that is, had a women CEO as of July 2019 which is only three and a half percent. Unbelievable. Three and a half percent. And so definitely a space that doesn't see a lot of women contenders. So in other interviews, you described that competing for the CEO position was intense. And I wanted to drill down in that too a little bit and that you were scrutinized immensely. In fact, at one point, um, the hiring committee commented that you were too soft, too directive, and too ambitious all at once. (laughs) Um, I had to read that a couple times over myself. Too soft, too directive, and too ambitious. So maybe you can uh, backtrack a little bit for us as to why you came to the conclusion that you were going to look to run for CEO. Yeah, so I I had an amazing career at KPMG. I, I led in a number of different aspects. I was the chief HR officer. I ran 30 of our smaller offices across the country. I ran the Toronto office and and by that point in my career and I I always wanted to have impact and I really reached a point where I felt like I could have the most impact if it was from from the top as CEO and and by that point in time I had a really clear vision in terms of where I thought the firm needed to go Um, I had a clear thought on strategy and I also was a pretty seasoned leader so I I had confidence in my own beliefs in terms of how I led and my values. And so I just, I felt the time had come. And and as I said, uh, I think in that interview that you read from, others had signaled that to me, uh, whether it's mentors, sponsors, other, other leaders. So I threw myself into it. I really, I went, I went all in, my family went all in. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. so I jumped right into it and I really, I really felt inspired and, and more passionate about sort of anything than I've ever felt in my life in terms of uh, what I was putting forward. And so when you put your hand up to say that you were going to compete for the role of CEO, how did you think the process would not only um, be, but what did you put on yourself to say that I'm going to compete and in what manner am I going to compete? Oh, that's a really good question. So... I I believe I, I had a sense of the I, I understood what the process was going to be and it was a very rigorous process and it involved leveraging an outside um, you know executive search firm who conducted a, a lot of psychrometric testing and interviewing I knew there would be panel interviews with board members you know a pitch to the board so I I understood the process and what was involved and the amount of preparation and work that would need to really, really go into that. Um, what I promised myself, as I said, I had a really clear, I had sort of these three pillars in the strategy that I felt were critical for KPMG for the future. And so I just kept anchoring to those three pillars. And I had a really good sense of myself by then. And I, mm-hmm. I believe in what I call people-centric leadership, which is all about put, putting people at the center of your strategy and getting that right and then everything everything flows from there so I 
as I went through the process, I really just reflected that in all my interviews, all my conversations. Um, I felt like I had all of the competencies, all of the experiences. I'd made all kinds of important, tough decisions in the firm. So I felt really confident in my capabilities. I think the part that I probably underestimated initially was the, the process, even though it was a rigorous process, it's politicized. I, maybe, maybe it's always going to be politicized in a partnership environment, but it was more politicized than I thought. And I think women are maybe naive about that going in. And so at a certain point in the process, you know, I made a decision about how much politics I was going to play or not. And it, it just, I hadn't thought about it ahead of time. It just sort of came from inside in terms of where I was comfortable and where I, where I wasn't comfortable. Um, and maybe that was a disadvantage at the end of the day. I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not sure. The other thing I thought about the process, the way it had been designed originally was that it should help eliminate some of the bias and you referenced it in your opening comments about this sort of double standard. Um, and so it wasn't really the hiring committee that said that to me explicitly, but I had heard that that was the feedback coming in from some partners or different groups that had been consulted. And at the time I was going through that process, it was the same time that Hillary Clinton was in the running for president of the U.S. And I remember reading articles about her at the time in the U.S. press. And I thought, oh my goodness, like that is exactly what I feel like I'm going through, right? You remember she was criticized for not being authentic enough on stage and being overprepared. And I thought, I always thought to myself, really, would you criticize a man for being a polished, competent, confident speaker? Would you criticize a man as being overprepared for something? And so it's that double standard, right, where I think organizations are still uncomfortable because we just don't have enough women leading, uncomfortable mm -hmm. with that more female style of leadership and understanding that it can be strong and effective leadership. It just looks different than what you're used to seeing. Right. And I, I couldn't agree with you more. It's different. And that doesn't mean that it's bad. And that whole notion that women need fixing in their in their leadership style, as in, you know, a lot of people believe that they avoid conflict or that they don't take risks or they're too emotional. And I think that it's just different how women lead often. And so how did you, because I imagine it was a fairly lengthy process, how did you keep some of those emotions in check and make sure that you weren't um, getting maybe too scared and not putting yourself out there or too excited and maybe taking the job on um, sometimes before you even had it. I can also imagine as it is for a lot of women, um, when you are at those top ranks, it is lonely. It is lonely to talk, uh, to find somebody to talk to about the excitement, about the um, hesitations, about how maybe scared you could be as to what it could turn out to be, whether you are successful in getting the CEO position or not. Yeah, I um, so I put some resources around me. Again, familiar pattern. I had two, two things there. One, I've been a member of YPO Young Presidents Organization for many, many years, and so I have a forum that I've been with for, um, you know, close to ten or eleven years now. And that forum group was a huge support to me because it's a safe place to go and really share how you're feeling. Uh, for them to hold a mirror up for you, to, to call you out on, on your emotions uh, or some of the things that you're thinking. So that, that group provided a lot of support. 
But I also put a small group of supporters together around me from KPMG, so other partners and leaders who were a sounding board for me in terms of my ideas. They gave me feedback on my presentations, on the things I was putting forward, and and they were really, you know, it was a small group that I would go back and consult with, right, after different stages of the process. I would call them together and say, okay, you know, these three tough questions have come up. Here's how I'm thinking of addressing them. What's your feedback? Can you criticize it for me? So um, putting together these little different advisory groups, I guess, and support groups, if you want to call them that, is really, really helpful because you don't feel like you're going through it alone. And then my family was just completely unconditional love, unbiased support. And my boys were older, so they completely understood what I was doing. And I just found that was a place where I could forget about everything that was happening in the process at KPMG and just be myself. And, you know, my older son, he's a great public speaker, so I even rehearsed my board speech with him and (laughs) had him give me feedback on that. So engaging my family in the process as well really, you know, gave me some emotional support too. I love that. I love that you built and tapped in the network that you had built up into that point. Because I think that a lot of people uh, definitely wonder at times that I'm building a network, um, but when and how do I use them as a resource? And I love that you decided that this is the time that is important for me to kind of, I don't want to say cash those chips in, but take those relationships to the next level where they can help give me some honest feedback that I'm sure that they did. It's interesting. So when I was about, my goodness, eight years ago now, about to go on to Dragon's Den, and I wasn't really sure about it. And I had said no first, and my family kind of pushed me into saying yes for a variety of reasons. The first thing I did was actually pick 10 people that were closest to me, and I felt the most honest, and asked them 10 very pointed, detailed questions about myself and about me. And I told them not to put their name on it, but to just really be frank and open about it. And I was really amazed at some of the responses that I got back because I feel that too often enough, we don't ask others close to us their true opinion um, to help us become more self-aware and help us improve. We often are trying to look at the mirror ourselves, and that's very, very hard to do. And so um, the good, bad, and the ugly, I think, is always really nice to have some people around you. But you do have to prompt and you do have to ask them often. Otherwise, unsolicited feedback from no matter who it is, is really hard to come by. And getting that feedback from people who you know are giving it to you from a place of goodness, right? Mm -hmm. That is so important as opposed to, you know, the snippets and the bits and bites you get from, you know, all all the chatter and the chirping that's going on around you. That is not helpful feedback. But but when you know it's coming from a good place, that's gold. (laughs) Right. Yes. So basically, Twitter is not helpful feedback. I agree. Um, So what would your advice be to women that are listening that have ambitions to rising to a CEO position? And maybe we can talk a little bit about that word ambition also. So ambition's a great, ambition's a great word and you should use it and embrace it and and love it. And I I learned that lesson by attending the Judy Project uh, actually at at Rotman, which is a a whole other story maybe for another day. But um, you know, ambition is often considered a dirty word, right, for mm-hmm. women, but it's not. I mean, you can be you can be ambitious for your organization. You can be ambitious for your community. You can be ambitious for your 
country and you can be ambitious for yourself within that. So um, there's nothing wrong with being ambitious. And so I would encourage women to get comfortable with that and using the word, even if they just say it to themselves or write it in their journals. Uh, my advice is go for it. So <laughs> you take take the risk. You, uh, do not do not hold yourself back out of fear of failure. And and you you will fail along the way, right? I failed at becoming the CEO at KPMG, but I wouldn't I wouldn't um, avoid that experience or you know do that differently. I just I learned so much about myself. Ironically, I gained a lot of confidence. I gained a new understanding of the courage and the resilience that, that I could find within myself that I didn't even know existed there. So I wouldn't change anything. I'm a stronger person for having attempted it. I think the other piece of advice I would give to women is to invest the time to really understand and know yourself. So anytime you have an opportunity to take a leadership course where they're going to do one of those leadership you know, assessments or 360s or psychometric testing, I would encourage you to just grab that and save all that over time. Because over time, you will see objectively a pretty consistent description of who you are as a leader and what your strengths are as a leader. And then you can be really confident in that. You don't have to try to be somebody else or model someone's other style of leadership. You've got your style of leadership and you know um, you, know you can be successful. I spent time, you know, I had a sabbatical at one point at KPMG that was part of the, the process. And I spent a lot of time that summer just journaling and reading and getting a handle on what I believe in and my values. And so, again, I think any of that self-reflection can make you a stronger leader. The other advice I would give women and allies, people supporting women, is to practice describing your achievements using business language. So outcomes and results. So she's decisive. She has a good eye for talent. She can make tough decisions. Too often we use language when we're describing women's accomplishments that is not helpful. Like it's soft and it's different than what we use for men. So I would encourage women to find champions who will use that language to describe, describe you. And as you and I already talked about, find some trusted people who can hold a mirror up. Um, a mirror up and show you where your blind spots are and then the other thing looking back on my career I would say is try to build as diverse a portfolio of experience as you can so you know don't let yourself stay too long or get too comfortable in one role it's really important to build out your experiences and practice taking risks and leading in areas that you haven't haven't led before and then you know Manjeet you you made the comment earlier about network and relationships, but invest in your relationships along the way and give into your relationships without expecting anything back. Cause at some point in time you will, to your point, call in those chips or you'll lean on those relationships, right? So I'm a big believer that you give, give, give and invest in those relationships because one day um, you will need them and they will come through for you. Yeah, very good points, definitely. And I like that you love the word ambition because I do think that we do have to talk about it in a positive light more and more because I do believe that we all have to create the highest, grandest vision possible for our lives because you become what you believe. So, 
you know, it said that on a Friday morning after those deliberations that you weren't chosen to be CEO and you got a call from the board chair uh, that you hadn't been selected. And I love that you shared that you went home and that you cried and your 18-year-old son hugged you. And I think that that is, is good and it's okay for us to all share that we just all just move on, that you mourned for something that you had worked for, but then you picked yourself up and you decided that it was time to walk away from KPMG. So can you talk a little bit about how you came to that decision and how you knew that it was the right decision? Because I think so many people, and I definitely still have a lot of this back and forth as to how do you know when it's the right time to walk away? Mm -hmm. Well, and that it didn't happen overnight and Mm -hmm. it probably shouldn't happen overnight given I was 26 years with the firm. So I, I was... I was devastated, obviously, given how much emotionally and intellectually I, I had put into into this. But I, I really didn't want to make just an emotional decision. So I, luckily, I had the summer. You know, we spent a lot of time at our cottage. So I, I took the summer to just sort of process the emotions. And someone said to me, you know, it's it's a grieving process. So mm-hmm. you have to go through all the stages of grief. I know you didn't lose, you know, a family member, but it's the same thing, right? You're going to. Mm-hmm. You're going to be really sad and then you're going to be really angry and then you're going to be resentful and you're kind of going to go through all these emotions and they were, they were right. So I took time at the cottage and, and a couple trips to really think about whether my views and the things that I really believed in were aligned with the direction of the new CEO. And I spent time talking to that individual to understand his strategy and where he saw things going mm-hmm. and exploring whether there was meaningful leadership roles for me and there were leadership role opportunities for me but but whether I thought they would give me both like the personal growth and the opportunity to have this impact that I desire to have and and after a few months Manjeet I just I couldn't square the circle right I just couldn't I couldn't see myself as thriving and having the impact I wanted to have um, in a role and so you know once I kind of mentally decided I was going to go then I felt like, okay, now I'm just holding other people back, you know, mm-hmm. from moving forward at KPMG. Um, and so I left without having something else yet to uh, to go to, just with the belief that I would find something amazing. I, I knew in my gut that was the right thing to do. Um, but, um, you know, then the logical part of me was like, are you crazy? What are you doing? <laughs> and so... Anyhow, there were times for sure during that search process after I left that that I did get pretty insecure and panicky thinking, oh, am I going to find anything after KPMG? So, um, you know, I left and then sort of dealt with the insecurity after I left. Got it. Got it. And so, you know, you, I think, and I have a couple books that we both love, Start With Why by Simon Sinek and How Will You Measure Your Life by Clayton Christensen. And so while you were coming up with your concrete actions as to how you wanted to improve and move forward, what did you kind of dream for yourself? I really wanted to find, so I, so I'm, I lead I lead the best in a change, like I'm a change agent. So, you know, my, my happy place leading is where there's, you know, some significant change to be led and, you know, I need to inspire people and bring the right team together and empower them and set them up for success and, and achieve some shift or change. And so I really wanted to go somewhere where I could do that 
Um, but most importantly, I wanted to lead the way that that was so true to me, which was all about putting people at the center and communicating, you know, in my style of communication and this, you know, accessible, approachable, you know, sort of flatter organization, network style of leadership. And so I needed to find an organization where I would be able to do both of those things. Hmm. And you really embody the idea that that when you're able to recover from failure, that it helps you take new risks and different risks. And also, I I, I heard you say once that, um, which really rung true for me, is that you failed, not that you were a failure. And I think that two very distinct, not only facts, but sentences, because they are very different. And it's very true that you failed and all of us fail at different times, but that does not mean that we are failures and that we learn from them. And like you say, we mourn and we grieve and we move forward, but it is a process. And to not have it affect not only your confidence, but your ambition moving forward that you wanted to lead, I think is really really admirable. And so a very, uh, I'm sure it didn't um, seem like a quick, but a very quick year later, I'm going to say, the Canadian division of the world's largest law firm was interested in you, an accountant, to lead their organization, which is Denton's. And so how did it feel to start over again, but at the top position? Yeah, well, it was exciting. It was exciting because you know, and I'd looked at a number of opportunities and then all of a sudden it's like the stars aligned because here was an opportunity to lead in its professional services, whether it's law or mm-hmm. accounting. And I could take all this wealth of like knowledge and experience that I had from KPMG and bring it to bear at a firm that had, you know, pretty strong cultural and values alignment. Um, and, you know, more importantly, it was an opportunity to start with a clean sheet of paper. So, here was the board of a law firm that were intentionally deciding to go outside the partnership and find mm-hmm. a non-lawyer, both of which that's highly unusual for a law firm. Mm-hmm. And they were looking at, you know, the big four accounting firms and saying, you know, everything about those firms, their business and talent um, processes, the way they go to market, it's it's where we want to get to over time. And then here I was, you know, out in the market looking looking for something where there would be a big change mandate. So it was it was just really exciting. I couldn't believe the fit. You know, that fits like a glove. It it really, I don't know. It just I think it just shows me that sometimes things happen for a reason. Right. Agreed. And the process of that, what did you feel that you had to learn in order to be the CEO? And what did you feel that you already, you know, I want to say had checkmarked off? Yeah. Well, I needed to really learn. I really needed to learn about the the nature of the practice of law and how Mm. that profession and the way to go to market, the way lawyers service clients. I needed to understand what was different. I had a good handle on what was similar needed to really understand and respect what was different. So, you know, for me, Manjeet, I entered that role and, and I tried to bring like a huge dose of humility with me. So I patiently spent the classic 90 days doing look, listen, learn. I knew that I'd be really unsuccessful if I came in sort of full of all these ideas and sort of saying, okay, I, I see where your challenges are. Here's the ready-made solution. This is how we do it in in you know the world of accounting firms. That obviously wasn't going to fly for sure, particularly with um, 
you know, with independent thinking lawyers. And so I spend a lot of time listening to people and building credibility, hearing where their pain points were. And then, frankly, it wasn't too difficult to just turn that around and replay people's words back to them in the context of here's the challenges and here's, you know, where we need to change and then just start building the momentum around uh, around the change. Um, and the other thing I really had to learn that the piece that was quite different is I had no pre-existing relationships or knowledge. So in an organization where you've been for 26 years, you know how to get things done. You know where to go for different areas of support. If somebody comes in to see you and tell you something as a leader, you know their context, their background. You know if you should take it with a grain of salt. You know, where's the where's the nugget of truth in, in the big story they just told you? I was I felt like I was flying blind as mm-hmm. as the CEO because I didn't have any of that context. So early on I, I found my I, I call I called the person my truth teller. I found myself a truth teller. Somebody who I could see early on was very willing to sit and give it to me straight and 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 was a good read on people and could tell me, you know, kind of the story behind the story. And that was important. Oh, I love the look, listen, learn. I think in all of our lives, we could use that more, no matter what we're dealing with, you know, whether it be a new position and, you know, start, starting up a business, but also just our day to day. I think that we often don't take the time to actually separate it in that we sometimes skip a couple of the steps, especially the listen part, right. <laughs> um, which I which I admire because usually as a leader, we are often, I feel, talking more than we are listening. And that can be hard because we feel that that is expected of us. But um, important to understand that we too have to look, listen, and learn in order to be better leaders. And that's not a bad thing by any means. Yes. And listen... I would say listen um, with a sense of curiosity, right? So not just passive listening, but listening to really understand the why and the how underneath the message that's being shared with you. Uh, Absolutely. And so how did the pandemic affect you not only as a CEO, but leading an organization through this time? Yeah, and I, I can't believe, you know, we're still sort of in a pandemic, <laughs> although, although well, I guess the, I the guess. sky no. is bright, the sky is bright. Um yeah, I certainly didn't take on the role of CEO expecting I was going to lead during a global pandemic. Maybe I'll talk about the personal part first because it's mm-hmm. it's hard to separate the two. Um, you know, personally, in the early days, I found it really difficult, like everybody did, right, in terms of my own level of anxiety about coronavirus. So, you know, I've had asthma ever since I was a child, so I had a real personal anxiety around this thought of, you know, something attacking my lungs. And I used to lie in bed at night. And, and I mean, I know what it feels like to not be able to breathe from when I was a kid and I had, un, you know, unmanaged asthma. And I just, that just scared me, to be honest. Mm. And then the other piece of it is I'm an only child and my mom is, you know, 80. Mm. Um, she has some health issues. And so I was desperately afraid for her. And during the during the pandemic, I guess it was October of the first year, she she made the decision to move into a, a retirement home. And so then that was a whole other ball game because um, often they would be isolated or quarantined. And so it fell to me to be her primary caregiver in terms of buying her groceries and bringing her things. And, and that involved going weekly to get a PCR test so that I could go in to see her and then Mm -hmm. on top of that I was trying to like lead and manage the firm as a CEO and so it it was actually found it pretty 
overwhelming and difficult in the in the early days before vaccines. Once the vaccines came, I felt anxiety alleviated. But you know, I remember one time I was getting my groceries, and of course, you're not you know you're only allowed one person to go to the grocery store. Mm-hmm. So I had like my groceries, I had my mom's groceries. I was trying to go the right way up and down the aisles. Had my mask on, and the whole the whole experience was really just you know, anxiety laden. And I remember I got out to my car and I must've been exhausted too, from all the decisions we were making at Denton's. And I got in my car and I just sat and I literally broke down and cried. And I thought, this is ridiculous. Mm. I'm an accomplished person. I'm educated. I'm a CEO and I can't even cope getting groceries. So how are my own team members and people feeling? And so I sort of tell you that story because I think it segues to the leadership part of COVID and you know we had to make all the difficult decisions that all businesses were grappling with but I really tried to be transparent and authentic with our people and to start with a place of understanding in terms of their own anxieties and issues and challenges as they transition to working from home and you know, young parents with little kids who couldn't go to school or they didn't have daycare or people like me dealing with, you know, elderly Mm -hmm. parents. So throughout the whole pandemic, we really tried hard to communicate in a number of different ways and be authentic and be transparent about the decisions we were making, the information we had or frankly often didn't have when we were trying Mm -hmm. to make those decisions. And you know, when we would next kind of revisit the decisions and make and make changes. And I found by sharing those stories with our people, it just, I had legal assistants, I had office services, people writing me directly as a CEO, you know, asking, Beth, how is your mom doing? And I thought, you know what, that's great. Because at a time when we're isolating everybody at home, and there's no personal connection anymore, people really need to feel connected to their leadership. And and I'm sure they appreciated that vulnerability because we were all going through a lot of things. And like you say, everybody was making decisions about their own, often their career, their family, their colleagues. Right. It, it was a lot on a lot of people. And at different times, I agree with you, whether it came out grocery shopping or in um, the umpteen Zoom of the day or, you know, your kids or your pets or whoever it might be and dealing with other issues, us taking it on as well. Women, especially, I feel all on our shoulders. And I think, unfortunately, that showed a lot with, you know, the numbers as to how many uh, women were leaving the workforce, mental health issues with women, just a variety of, and I'm sure, um, unfortunately, probably much more to come, which we will see the long-term effects of. But it is something to be said that um, you were open enough and vulnerable enough to talk about it, that you were dealing with it too, and that you weren't built of Teflon, that you were, just because you were the leader or have a tight of CEO that you're not human. And I think that that is incredible leadership to be able to understand and have empathy with those that you are leading. Yeah, absolutely. And in the early days of the pandemic, I think what was really hard too for leaders is that the information was really imperfect. Mm -hmm. There's no playbook written for how to lead through a pandemic. I mean, everybody has business continuity plans and, you know, maybe Mm -hmm. some, some organizations had pandemic plans back from the day of bird flu or something, but not, not that was really going to help you through this. And so early on, you were making a lot of decisions with imperfect information and that, that makes leadership teams really uncomfortable. Um, So it was important to 
you know, do the best you could with what you had and then, and then really make these decisions in a principled way and then adjust them as the information changed. And sometimes the information changed by the time you got up out of bed the next morning. So, Very true. Yeah. And uh, what do you feel that you have kept with you as far as what you learned through leading through um, the pandemic, especially that first year about vulnerability and about having courage to make decisions and sometimes go back on them and, and pivot, but also just in some cases, just putting yourself out there. The importance of communication, the importance of communicate authentic, sorry, not just communication, the importance of Authentic, timely, transparent communication for sure. Um, I would say, I would say, Manjay, people people will understand if you don't have all the information and if you're clear on what it is you don't have and if something changes in the future, when and how you're going to change the decision. That's key. The other thing I learned, and you don't really think of law firms as being all that agile, but people are way more agile than we gave them credit for. And when I look yeah. at how quickly people pivoted and you look at the adoption of technology and how it's really transformed, right? The way we communicate, the way we meet, the way we mm. the way we market to clients, the way we service clients. It, we were probably, well, I guess we were about two and a half, three years into our five-year strategy. And, and so one of the upsides of COVID was that it really accelerated the whole technological transformation part of our agenda. And, and that's, you know, that's a great thing. There's a lot of innovation that happened in a very short period of time without a lot of money being invested either. So I, you know, I think that's an interesting lesson, not that we want to recreate the environment of a pandemic in order to, in order to um, spur innovation, but there was something there that was revealed about the ability for even large organizations to be pretty agile. Agreed. And I think individuals too, that we're all so much more capable than we think we are of being agile and also learning. I was definitely not one who is very good with anything IT, but I also will admit I didn't really try very hard because there was a lot of people around me, including my kids, who I would give things to, like figure this out and give it back to me. And so I think that we all learned about ourselves as to how quickly we could learn and figure it out, but how we can actually navigate technology. I would say my parents, my grandparents, Everybody learned very quickly, even when they, I think, for a very long time, uh, maybe doubted their skills, um, especially when it comes to technology and how connected it can really make you uh, if you take the time to learn it. And so in closing, I, I want to talk about maybe what's next. And I really do appreciate you sharing so many of your inspiring stories and insights with us today. So what is next for you uh, when you look back, when you know you were a young woman starting your career? Um, what advice would you give to that young woman? But also, where, do, where should we look for Beth next? Right. Right. So maybe on the what's next. So I've shifted, I've shifted out of full-time executive leadership. You and I were chatting earlier in this conversation about the stages of life and sort of gearing yourself differently. Um, so I've moved out of executive leadership because I want some more flexibility and, and time um, with family, friends, and, and my mom, but also because there's a number of things I'm interested in, in doing, and it's hard to do all of that when you're you know, 24-7 thinking about an organization you're responsible for. So I'm curating a portfolio of um, professional community and personal activities and projects, and some of that will be corporate board work, which I'm looking forward to. Um, but I'm really at that stage where I just relish some of the flexibility, a little less pressure, but still lots of intellectual challenges and opportunities to have an impact. Um, and I feel like I have a lot of knowledge and experience, so hopefully I can give some of that back through 
board work or some coaching and, and consulting. Um, and I have a whole set of really wonderful friendships with a bunch of women that, that I run and cycle with. And one thing with COVID, I, I found it brought us closer together, I guess, because we had more mm. flexibility and, and time together. And so earlier in my life, when the boys were little, I, I find your friendships are probably one of the areas where you don't invest as much. So it's nice to be able to do that at this stage. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. I said to, I said to my group of women, when we were running, they were asking me, how am I feeling in this transition? I said, you know, I just, I feel like I have like less weight on my shoulders, more room in my brain and more space in my heart. And so I'm just really, you know, I'm only a couple months into it. I'm just looking forward to this stage. Um, what words of advice would I give to my younger self? I think, you know, be confident in being yourself. Hmm. You know, don't try to be other people. Just be confident in being yourself as a as a woman and whatever that is for you. You know, your whole self. Um, I would say take a long, and I say this to lots of young women that I meet with, take a long-term perspective to your career because you're. it is a long journey. I know it doesn't feel that way when you're 24 or when you're 30 and you're thinking about maybe taking a maternity leave, but but it's such a long journey and there are so many opportunities to do amazing things at, at so many stages of your life. So, you know, it's, it's a long journey and it can be really fulfilling. So just enjoy every stage and some aspect of every stage along the way, because it's, it's pretty amazing when you look back on it. Very good point. I agree with you. In some ways, it goes by very quickly, but in some ways, it feels like it's never ending. And so I think that that is really sage advice to say that you do have to enjoy every stage because every stage builds not only gives you experiences, but gives you networks and people that are in your life, maybe for a short time, maybe for the long term, but also definitely helps you learn a lot about yourself. Maybe what you don't like or not good at, or maybe the the, the contrary. So some really fabulous advice there. I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much, Beth, for joining us today. Such an insightful discussion, full of valuable life lessons. I was definitely taking tons of notes as we were discussing and chatting. And there's a couple that really stood out to me. Some things that you said, such as find a truth teller in your life. I truly believe that that is so important. And I love that you have a name for that, truth teller. Also, that we need to embrace ambition, that word and what it means for us and that it is something that is good and great and that we all have it and need it and we need to talk about it. So thank you so much for joining me today and thanks to everyone listening for tuning in. I encourage you to find the wealth in your own stories and always remember above all else you have to have the courage to succeed. We look forward to having you back for our next episode presented by IG Wealth Management. You can learn more by visiting ig.ca slash women and can also find that link in the description of this episode. Thanks and see you next time. This has been a wealth of women's stories hosted by Manjeet Minhas and presented by IG Wealth Management. The views, information, and opinions expressed are those of the featured guests and not those of IG Wealth Management.